Welcome to episode 83 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. It wasn't long ago that my Zoom discussions were filled with wishes for a happy new year. How could it be worse than 2020? Well, worse it is. As we all looked on horrified, the U.S. Capitol was attacked, not by foreign terrorists, but by Americans. While our politics are more polarized than ever in my lifetime, surely we can unite against this threat to democracy. The world is being threatened by a pandemic that continues to thrive, a climate warming beyond its limits, and an increase in authoritarianism around the globe. In the aftermath of 9-11, Americans from all political backgrounds came together, if only for a brief time. Perhaps that can happen again, and 2021 can be a great year after all. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Craig Ebert, president of the Climate Action Reserve. Craig, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thank you for the invitation. Can you talk about your motivating moment? When did you decide to become a climate champion? Fabulous question. I actually got involved in this back in 1987. I was working back in Washington, D.C. with an energy and environmental consulting firm called ICF. We were the main policy contractor supporting the U.S. EPA. Back in the 1980s, Congress asked EPA to look into this issue of climate change. What is it all about? And they directed the preparation of two reports to Congress, one on the science and effects of climate change and the other on what we could do about it. I got to work primarily on the latter one and what we could do about it, policy options for stabilizing the global climate. Like many people at that time, I didn't know anything about this issue but I've always wanted to work on the cutting edge of energy and environmental issues that are most important to our society. It doesn't come any more important than climate change. And that's really what started it, that first report to Congress, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Do you remember a specific moment when you realized how important this was and how much you wanted to engage? The early summary of information coming from the world scientists about how humans' activities were changing the global climate system just shocked me. We all hear about this and we think, ah, it's another environmental issue, let's discuss it. But you hear that the climate crisis is described as an existential crisis, and it really is. By that, what we mean, it truly is affecting this beautiful planet on which we live. And it's not that the earth won't survive, it's that the human capacity to enjoy our condition on this planet is changing dramatically at a rate that we cannot adjust to. And it's because of human interaction. We need to stop those negative impacts and save the world, literally. Why is climate change mitigation personally important to you? What drives you? It really goes back to this issue of an existential crisis for humanity on this planet. We've created this problem over the last few centuries through our use of fossil fuels, and that's created enormous economic opportunity. But the 21st century will be defined by collectively creating a clean energy economy that protects the planet 
and still offers tremendous economic opportunity for people all around the globe. So I think the climate issue brings all those issues to our head. It gives us an opportunity to fundamentally make a difference and to do so in a way that we can't even imagine right now that will be very beneficial, not only for those of us who have been working on this for a while, but I have kids, maybe someday I'll have grandkids, and it really is the legacy we want to leave the next generation, the opportunity to enjoy the wonderful planet that I've seen in my lifetime. When you meet people that don't believe in climate change or don't trust the data, don't align with your perspective on it, how do you convince them otherwise? Well, in this era of polarization, that's always a challenge. What I remind people of is that every National Academy of Sciences on the planet has said that human activity is dramatically affecting the global climate. This is not a question for debate anymore among the world scientists. There's near universal acclaim that this is a problem we have to address. People are skeptical of science. Frankly, I like to use some very simple analogies. Most of us have had the opportunity of flying in a jet airplane at some point. Next time you're up at 35, 40,000 feet, look down. 90% of the atmosphere is below you, at least 90%. By the time you get up to 15,000 feet, 75% of the atmosphere is below you. Ask yourself, what are the chances that with seven and a half plus billion people on the planet, having dumped pollution into that thin envelope of life around the planet, hasn't been affected by human activity. If we could get in our cars and drive straight up, we could drive through it in 10 minutes. It's a very thin layer of life that supports the wonderful world we live in. Why are we playing Russian roulette with it? What do you do and what does Climate Action Reserve do? The Climate Action Reserve is dedicated to market-based solutions to addressing the climate crisis. We're perhaps best known as an offset project registry serving the California cap and trade market. What that means is the cap and trade program here in California limits the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that the big emitters in the state can emit. An option available to that program is the use of what's called an offset. An offset is nothing more than an emission reduction that's beyond the fence line of a company. So it could be things like improved forest management, which literally absorbs carbon out of the atmosphere and makes for a healthier forest. It could be the recovery of methane off of a landfill or methane off of a large dairy operation. Uh, that's another way to reduce emissions going to the atmosphere. It could be the collection of ozone depleting substances. For example, the refrigerants used in our refrigerators or in our cars. We can capture those chemicals, prevent their release into the atmosphere, and they're strong greenhouse gases. We can make a difference that way. So. That's what we do on the compliance program here in California. But we're also the premier offset registry across North America. We have over 20 offset protocols operating in North America, most of them in the US, but we have several down in Mexico, which is very active right now. We also have one up in Canada and expect to have more in the future. How has the pandemic affected what you and the organization can accomplish? We don't have the luxury of time, and we've been fortunate that our entire operation has been able to go virtual. We're continuing forward with our mission. I will just give a couple of quick points. Just this past week, our board of directors approved two new offset protocols that we think will make an incredible difference. One is on endipic acid production, which is used in nylon. That's an industrial activity, but it's a major emitter of greenhouse gases, and we're going to put a serious dent in those emissions. The other one is called the Soil Enrichment Protocol, 
And it's basically to incentivize farmers to adopt more sustainable agricultural practices, to rebuild the natural carbon that is typically found in a natural soil. Over the course of many decades, we've depleted a lot of that carbon that you can actually find in our agricultural lands. Now's the time to rebuild it. It's a win-win on so many levels, not only from a climate perspective, but we can provide additional economic incentives to farmers. We can provide a lot of other ecological benefits as we create a more sustainable agricultural system. That will benefit all of us in the long run. Can you talk about your journey, how you got where you are today? I mentioned I got my start working on those initial reports to Congress. Throughout the 1990s, it was a time of action in Washington, D.C. on climate change. There was a lot of discussion internationally of what the next step should be. There was a lot of action domestically about what to do about this problem. So I was fortunate to be working with the U.S. EPA and in some cases international bodies on the climate crisis. Did a lot of work early on on how countries should estimate their greenhouse gas emissions. That led to the opportunity, frankly, to personally visit many countries and teach them how to estimate their own greenhouse gas emissions. There were several what were called country studies programs back in the 1990s and early 2000s. And I did that right on through 2000, maybe a little bit later than that. Unfortunately, when George Bush was elected president, he withdrew the U.S. from the Kyoto Protocol. And that really set off the world politically we're in today where there's a lot of disagreement around the science of climate change and certainly disagreement on what should be done with it. Most unfortunate, because as I said earlier, the science is settled. This is a problem. We are affecting the global climate. And what the scientific community is telling us right now is that we are out of time. Humanity is out of time to address this. Specifically, they're telling us we have to be on a downhill glide by 2030 in global greenhouse gas emissions and get to net zero soon thereafter. We're not even coming close right now. I believe that even that is giving us more time than we really have. I'm looking at what is actually happening and what's happening with the weather and the events we're seeing. I don't think we're going to have the kind of time that you're talking about. Well, let me clarify what I meant by time. We have to have put in place the policies, the actions, the strategies to be driving emissions down. That needs to happen now. It should have happened many, many years ago. So do not take away from this that we have the luxury of waiting until 2030 to think about this. That is way too late. It perhaps may be way too late today. That is my concern. And we're seeing it, as you just noted, in the effects in the world around us. I think we need to go, go, go as soon as possible, as fast as we can. There's no question about that. We need to accelerate it. It'll create enormous economic opportunity. In some respects, it will be disruptive, but in a positive way. If not, we're letting the natural climate system change in ways that we will not be able to tolerate. I think one of the things that concerns me about this, I mentioned those first reports to Congress I worked on. One of the scariest things is back at that time, 30 years ago, there was a whole list of potential climate effects that we weren't sure when they would happen. Everyone thought that they would be maybe a century or two out. And so we just listed them without trying to quantify them. And they were things like, melting of the Greenland ice sheet and major methane percolating out of the permafrost in the northern latitudes. We're seeing a number of these impacts today here in 2020. This is upon us. If anything, the climate system is more sensitive than we've understood. You're absolutely right. We're out of time. And what the world has committed to today is woefully inadequate. There's a lot of discussion around the Paris Agreement that was signed in 2015. 
The Trump administration has committed the U.S. to withdrawing from that agreement, which was voluntary. It wasn't even mandatory. It was each country making their own voluntary commitments. Even assuming that all the countries did what they committed to in 2015, we would get down to maybe 3.4, 3.5 degrees centigrade warming. The scientists are telling us we have to get to one and a half, maybe two degrees. We're very close to that level already. So what we've even committed to in 2015 is not enough. And furthermore, most countries have not even started on that journey. They're not going to achieve their Paris target. So we have to accelerate ambition, and we have to do it in a major way right now. You talked about pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol being a setback. Can you talk about others? A development that happened at that time and accelerated since then is this disbelief in the science. We see that in other matters that are discussed today, the skepticism around what the scientists are telling us. It's certainly happening around COVID-19. But when it comes to the climate crisis, too many people have simply decided to ignore what the scientists are telling us. And it's the proverbial, let's stick our head in the sand approach and hope this problem goes away. It is not going to go away. So withdrawal from the Kyoto Protocol was key. The election of Trump has been a disaster for the climate. There was a clean power plan that was going into place requiring greenhouse gas limits on major emitters in this country. It would have been a very positive step in the right direction. It was killed by the Trump administration. The Trump administration has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. That's unfortunate. The reality of it is there continues to be this bipolar view in the political world about how serious the climate crisis is. Those that think we have no time to wait and those who think we have completely overblown it and can afford to ignore it. Those in the latter camp are not doing themselves or the rest of us or future generations any service. It's a disservice of a major magnitude. I feel like I took you down with that question. So let me give you the opportunity to get back up. What successes are you most proud of? In my career, I've had a combination of working on major climate mitigation initiatives, which is what I do with the Climate Action Reserve. I've been talking about all the offset protocols that we've got in place in both the voluntary and the compliance market across North America. We continue to add to that, which is increasing the amount of tools to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and do so in a cost-effective way. I've had the opportunity to work with a number of Fortune 500 and mid-sized companies on their climate and sustainability strategies. And many in the private sector understand the magnitude of this, are making serious commitments, and are willing to spend hard-earned dollars to make a substantial difference. We need to unleash that creativity and innovation and make it happen now. Another key opportunity I've had in my career is, frankly, just the educational aspect, whether it's educating people about the science of climate change, or about how greenhouse gas emissions are created, or what the options are for trying to reduce emissions, there's a lot of learning we can all do. And I've been privileged to work on this for nearly 34 years now, which perhaps makes me a bit of a dinosaur in this field, but I welcome that. It's the issue of our times environmentally. It really is. And we need to take dramatic action. With all the programs that I've been able to work on, it's led to hundreds of millions of tons of reductions, but that's just the start. We've got a long way to go. And not much time to do it. No time to do it. Can you talk about your vision for the future, for the earth, for the U.S.? What do you think it's going to be like 20, 30, 40 years from now? My hope in 20, 30, 40 years, we will have 
a collective movement on this planet unlike anything we've ever seen before. That's both a hope and a fear. A hope in the sense that we'll recognize the severity of this crisis, we'll all come together and realize that we are truly a community on this planet. We're all affecting each other's livelihoods and we can make a difference. My fear is that old ways of thinking about it, us versus them, is completely inappropriate for addressing this crisis. We can't solve this ourselves. It needs to be a collective effort, but certainly here in the US and across North America, we can lead the charge, we can establish a leadership position we once had, but we've abdicated that responsibility up to this point. Moving forward, we need to emphasize that there really is a huge economic opportunity to create a low carbon, no carbon future for the 21st century. Your competitive juices ought to get flowing wanting to be first in line to make that happen. But if you're not, you're going to lose out. And that's, to me, perhaps a bit of a tangent here. But the emphasis that you hear too much today about, well, how do we save the coal industry or the oil industry? What we need to be concerned about is the livelihood of people who currently have those jobs. That's what we need to focus on. And we need to create those green jobs and create a new future for them. Trying to recreate the 19th century economy or the early 20th century economy as a solution is doomed to failure and it will fail. It's failing right now and people often don't understand it, but the reality of it is we can produce electrical power now with renewable energy sources at a lower cost than it costs to operate an existing coal plant. So why are we still operating coal plants? If we didn't have long-term coal contracts for many of those power plants, they'd be shut down tomorrow. So we need to be taking actions like that to accelerate innovation and make sure that we've got the alternatives. Do you think the pandemic has helped the climate change mitigation mission or made it worse? I can't say it's made it worse, but it's deflected attention from the issue. The upside is because of, and this is a perverse argument, but because of just the economic contraction we've all felt around the world, emissions have dropped for a short period of time. But that's the appearance of buying us time. We really don't have that time. So it would be a mistake to think that somehow we've got the luxury of additional delay. We do not. You do hear some talk about emerging from the post-COVID-19 world, whatever that world is going to be, and emphasizing a green recovery. We can do that, but it's certainly not an a fait accompli by any stretch of the imagination. It's only going to happen if we take the steps to make it so. And we're not doing that at the moment. What's a piece of advice you would give to people that want to help? What's one thing they can do? It's hard to limit it to just one thing. Then take two. First and foremost, people need to accept the fact that this is a real problem. If you can't get to that point, asking you to take action on it, obviously that's not going to happen. So we need to understand the severity of this crisis and the fact that we are in this all together. I think in terms of specific steps that individuals can take, for example, transportation is a major emitter of greenhouse gases. We all need to rethink how we travel about. And the solution is not not traveling. The solution is just trying to travel in a more sustainable way. There's more and more electric vehicles coming on market. There's more hybrid vehicles. There's more higher mileage vehicles. One thing the Trump administration also did that has negatively affected the climate is 
seriously back off the new mileage standards for vehicles, we can build more fuel efficient vehicles. We can still have all the nice amenities we want in it. But that's something an individual can do is to try to buy a more climate friendly vehicle. And there's more and more options coming out there. We can, consumers can, will, and need to drive the change in that market. The automakers will build it if you will come to that market. So consumers can speak with their dollars there. You know, at home, it's, it's the same things we've been also hearing about for years is conserve your energy. Don't unnecessarily overly cool or overly heat your home. We all know the steps we could take to do that. It makes a serious difference. You mentioned people being able to still have all the amenities, just drive a car with better technology. But a lot of people are arguing that people have to change their behavior. They can't expect to be able to live the same way that technology alone isn't going to get us out of this. Do you have any perspective on that? I'm very sympathetic to that argument. But personally, I am concerned that it's doomed to failure. If people view addressing the climate crisis as nothing more than sacrifice, 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 we're not going to move the needle enough. We simply won't. People have an expectation that in their lives they will have certain amenities. And it varies from person to person, but people want to be able to jump in their car or their truck and go somewhere. They want to be able to fly. They want to be comfortable in their homes. We saw this back in the 1970s when Jimmy Carter put the sweater on and asked people to sacrifice, and there was a backlash. People saying, no, we don't need to do that. And it was used as a sledgehammer to say we don't need to do anything. Well, that's incorrect. I think we solved this crisis by, yes, we have to ask people to change their behaviors, but in a constructive way. We can still bring a lot of very viable options to market. People can still travel, still have that degree of comfort. But yeah, we should be rethinking everything from the size of the home that we live in. Do people need five, six, seven thousand square foot homes, whatever the size it is? We've been upsizing McMansions over time. It's become a real issue. The suburban sprawl is a major issue. Just here in Southern California, how far out into the desert are we going to build? All the way to the Arizona border? Left unchecked, that's a, a real problem. And I understand that encompasses a variety of other issues, but I don't think you can sell this as just an issue of sacrifice. Yes, people have to retool how they're thinking about this and make smarter choices. But I think there's enormous technological potential to offer people so that they certainly don't have to view this as just pain and suffering on their part because it doesn't need to be. You mentioned Southern California sprawl. How do you think California is doing? California is somewhat of a microcosm for success here. And I'm not saying that California has made all the right steps, but it's on the right journey. And if you think about where California is in 2020 in addressing the climate crisis, we're greening our grid, which means the electrical power that people are consuming is coming from green sources. That's a major impact right there. If we can change the transportation sector by bringing a lot of probably electric vehicles, but perhaps other technologies that are low carbon, no carbon to the market, that is another major advance at that stage. We've got a lot of work to do there. But if you think about having a green grid with a lot of electric vehicles, they marry each other quite nicely and you can quickly lower your greenhouse gas emissions. There are other things that will also make a difference. The 
offset types that we provide, the emission reductions you can achieve by that can address some of the areas that are not captured by the cap and trade program. We need to more effectively manage our forests. It goes without saying, as we watch the West burn every year, major investments need to happen there. But that to me is a really positive message. 30 years ago, when I was first looking at this, there was just a lot of concern about how do we get there? What are the solutions going to look like? And I'm not here to say that this is exactly the solution set we need to follow, but they're out there right now. We know what they are. We can make it happen. We can build low emission vehicles. We can build electric vehicles. The costs are coming down. The range is going up. The opportunities are there. We know how to do it now. What we lack right now is the will, and that needs to change right now. Is there anything else that you want to say? One other aspect of the work at the Climate Action Reserve I haven't talked about, but I think it's important to mention it. We launched a new program just about two years ago now that we call the Climate Forward Program. It is not an offset program. There are a lot of actions that need to happen that for a variety of reasons don't fit neatly into the offset world. For anyone familiar with a carbon offset, as I mentioned, a reduction beyond the fence line of a company, those are typically after the fact. In other words, one that achieves the reduction and then you get the credit for it, which is called an offset. What about actions that we could do today that may not create a reduction except in the coming years? And I'll use a great example, reforestation activities. If one sticks a seedling in the ground, you've got to wait several decades for that tree to get big enough to sequester sufficient amounts of carbon to make a difference. The Climate Forward Program has a simple concept underpinning it. Any investment today that's going to create additional greenhouse gases, whoever's the investor behind that project should own those greenhouse gases and start mitigating that project today. So for example, if you're building a new manufacturing facility or a new community development that's going to be generating a future stream of greenhouse gas emissions, generate a future stream of emission reductions to mitigate the impact of that project. That's what we're looking at in Climate Forward. And we think it opens up the avenue for a whole host of innovative, creative ideas that I and others haven't even thought about yet. Every community has unique situations that they could address. They could bring those projects to the Climate Forward program. And I'll just give you examples of projects we've already seen in our Climate Forward program. There are companies that are putting solar PV panels on low-income homes in South LA. That's not going to happen if they weren't doing that. They're putting insulated pool covers on community pools in poorer communities. They're investing in energy-efficient cookstoves in Zambia, Africa, which I think is one of the best projects on the planet. I also mentioned reforestation. Companies around the globe have a lot of interest in nature-based solutions. Reforestation is one part of that. We have to find a way to unleash interest in reforesting deforested lands all around the globe. And our reforestation methodology under the Climate Forward Program can definitely incentivize that. As I mentioned, we don't create offsets. We call them FMUs or forecasted mitigation units, but it's essentially a credit for doing something that makes sense for our climate today. Very interesting. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. In 1987, some people in Congress were deaf. That's when you started your work at the ICF. The early studies, they just rocked. The scientific data, it just shocked. 
If we want to continue civilization, we have to get through these times of polarization to help limit GSG and pollution. We need offsets, a market-based solution. Farmers, they can do offsets. They don't have to toil. They can return carbon into the soil. One of the things that started our fall is when we pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol. A lot of people on data, they have a reliance, so it's just crazy. They don't believe the science. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have more to go. I have more to go. We've got to start turning the innovation knobs. We've got to start creating greener jobs. We can't keep holding the earth for ransom. We've got to stop building every single McMansion. Technology have us not need to change. It certainly would be nice because it can't all be about sacrifice. Technology, it just isn't a magic pill. We've got to somehow find in ourselves the will. If we want to be a leading nation, we've got to get into reforestation. Why are you talking to me? Why don't you just put that on the podcast? That's awesome. <laughs> Craig and I talked a lot about technology versus sacrifice. I've talked to many champions on the show that believe it will take significant sacrifice and many that believe technology will save the day. Ultimately, this is not going to be a one or the other solution. Many of us are benefiting from superior technologies like electric vehicles. At the same time, we help mitigate climate change. But those products can be expensive and take time to develop and deploy. Given the immediate increasing rate of weather events, sacrifices such as a price for carbon and conservation are necessary for those that have the means. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. I couldn't agree more when Craig said... We can make it happen. We know how to do it now. What we lack right now is the will, and that needs to change right now. Thank you, Craig, for having the will for 40 years to help mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.